This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life Well, today's going to be an awesome conversation. Uh, some people are just able to do just about everything, and, and here we have one of them. So Kaya Abdul is a multi-talented and deeply passionate leader in public health who has not gone unnoticed. Abdul received her bachelor's from the University of New Haven in biology with a concentration in pre-medical studies and her master's in public health from Charles R. Drew University concentrated in urban healthcare disparities. Abdul has had a lengthy and notable career in regulatory affairs, working in institutions and organizations such as Yale University, Roche Genentech, Pfizer, Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and she founded, oh yeah, that too, Career Savage. It's a platform providing college students with career advice. Abdul recently released her book, The Prepared Graduate, dedicated to helping students and young professionals navigate their road to ultimate career success. It is really in, indeed and truly an honor to discuss really the, her journey and hear a little bit more about uh, what her path has been like and her thoughts and ideas around, um, you know, looking at uh, our audience and, you know, looking ahead to your future if you're a, uh, a student, um, a graduate, or even mid-career looking at, you know, how to redesign your own mission and moving forward. Uh, really excited to, to hear the story uh, from Kaya and, and influence uh, a whole uh, generation of up-and-coming talent that now can think about different career paths as they make their choices going forward. So welcome to the show, Kaya. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. <laughs> well, it might be useful, you know, just to kind of uh, level set here, maybe if you wouldn't mind um, talking a little bit about um, what you're working on right now, um, most especially maybe talk a little bit about your um, decision to write the book and and how that's weaving in and, and kind of um, um, in and amongst the uh, activities that you have underway um, with your company as well. Sure, sure. Um, so currently I'm still working in regulatory affairs. Um, I was previously working on products in hematology and oncology. That's what I was doing at BMS and Genentech Roche. And then I transitioned into regenerative medicine, cell therapy. I was at Histogen for a little bit, um, helping kick off a phase one first in human study. And then um, my time there sort of abruptly ended and I ended up transitioning over to Acadia Pharmaceuticals where I've been working um, as a global regulatory affairs associate director. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of the product Pimavanserin, um, but that's been a product that I've been supporting for the past two years. Um, and I'm still continuing to do my regulatory work while also educating people on the different opportunities that are available in clinical research and development. I've been working on my YouTube channel for a while, TikTok, Instagram, um, and it kind of took a, a, a long time, I would say, at least like two, three years to get the traction that I have now in educating people on regulatory. Um, but it's picking up, which I'm really happy about, and I think a lot more people who have science background, non-science background, are um, looking for more opportunities in regulatory affairs, medical affairs, and all the different functions that go into the research and development process. And my book, I actually published it January 2022. So it's been a little bit over a year since the book has been published. 
Um, and the main focus really was to help college students understand that just because you go to school for one certain degree doesn't mean that like you have to pursue that one thing. For example, biology, everyone thinks you have to go to medical school. But if you just take the time to really intern and work in different areas, you'll kind of understand what your interests are. I started uh, volunteering at Yale University in the pediatric oncology unit. Shortly thereafter, I realized I do not want to be a pediatrician. Um, I'm too much of an empath to work with really, really sick kids. Um, so while I was in college, I worked at CVS as a pharmacy technician and then eventually Milford Hospital. And I started to realize I kind of like learning about different medicines, but I, I still I don't think the patient piece is for me. And it, it, it took at least three or four years for me to admit that to myself. I don't have the personality um, to engage with patients on a day-to-day -day basis because I'll internalize what they're feeling. It's, it just wouldn't be conducive for anybody. So I um, started looking into public health and that's how I ended up working at Yale for a short amount of time in their immunology department, educating students on different vaccines, why they're important, why they have to get them, working with the Connecticut State Department of Public Health, making sure all incoming students were compliant. And in working with those biologics, Pfizer somehow uh, reached out and was like, are you interested in regulatory affairs? We really like your pharmaceutical background, having worked as a technician throughout college. And then now you have a little bit of public health experience. Um, do you want to work in our regulatory affairs department? And I said, I don't know what that is, but sure. <laughs> and, um, I just started working there and I really, really loved it. I loved the strategy behind it. Uh, and that's how I got into regulatory. Well, and can you break it down a little bit? So talk yeah. a little bit about what, what you do in regulatory affairs and just even for for our audience, maybe explaining sure. kind of as a drug is making its way through the, uh, you know, discovery and development and then clinical trial process. Maybe you could talk through the lens of describing your role in regulatory affairs, like yeah. what that means and also kind of what, what the journey of a drug looks like when you start to see it. Oh, I, I, well, regulatory sees it in the preclinical stage. So when they're mm -hmm. still testing the drug in the animal model phase, but recently the FDA just came out and said that, you know, uh, sponsors no longer have to test drugs in animals, which is really great because no one likes to do it. We don't like it and the health authorities don't like it. So I think that's a really cool update that just came out, I think like a week or two ago. Um, but regulatory is involved from the preclinical phase because you kind of have to strategize what pathways you want to take. There's different designations, whether it's orphan designation, accelerated, fast track, um, rare disease does get a lot of support from the health authorities in understanding like how to keep patients compliant, how to do recruitment, because sometimes it's only six to 9,000 patients that are affected and it can kind of be hard to um, produce a countrywide study, but uh, regulatory is involved from day one. Um, and then what we do, the best way I explain it to people in like super layman terms is I kind of see regulatory professionals as like lawyers. And the same way that a lawyer goes before a court or a judge to defend their client and say like they did or they didn't do whatever is the same way that regulatory kind of goes before the health authority to present data and explain why a product should be approved or why a product should move to the next stage. Um, and also just to engage in conversations like a mediation with the FDA on how do you want us to approach this next level of development? We're transitioning for phase one. The results were really good. We want to move into phase two. What's your perception on this, uh, on how we're going to assess the data from like a biostats perspective? Making or, the case. Um, 
making the case of how mm-hmm. exactly. And it's very important because what is said in that case, oftentimes you in that first like phase one meeting, you'll hear about it right before approval because FDA will be like, well, why did you do this this way? And the sponsor will come back and say, well, if you look at the minute meetings that you sent, you told us to do this and that's why we did this. And then, you know, it kind of holds the FDA and the sponsor compliant to why this strategy was curated the way it was from day one. So regulatory IC, we are the the project managers, we are the lawyers, we are the case makers, we are the innovators and, and also explaining to the sponsor well, why should we make this a global study or why should we start as a smaller study? So um, we're the trailblazers and the lawyers, I would say, in the research and development process. I love that. That's great. That's a great illustration and uh, and, and critical, really. So then maybe you could also, um, just curious to see as you're taking a product uh, through the clinical trial process, you use the word recruitment. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about recruiting patients and, you know, regulatory affairs role in that? And then also kind of how it relates to the clinical trial design. So like when a, a, a drug company is trying to get a, uh, a drug through clinical development, you, you kind of set up a study, right? And you, you yeah. lay out rules and, and you kind of define with the FDA what, what is going to determine a win, you know, or a success. If you could just talk a little bit about the dynamics of recruiting patients in and then how you set the rules for success with the FDA, that would be kind of cool. Yeah, sure. Um, So there's actually a clinical operations department that's primarily responsible for recruitment and saying what they can and cannot do. So I actually think that it really depends on the size of the organization that you're working in. I've primarily worked for small to mid-sized companies, so regulatory kind of gets roped into the clinical operation decision-making, but at really massive companies, regulatory is not going to be too involved with recruitment. They'll know what's going on, but there's too many people for regulatory to really make a decision. It's really going to be clinical operations wheelhouse. But um, in terms of the recruitment process, as I was saying, your clinical operations director will tell you like, this is what we can or can't do. And then also it kind of depends on the clinical research organization that you're working or the contract research organization that you're working with. Cause CROs often help sponsors stabilize the recruitment process by picking sites they know can recruit a certain number of patients. Some sites will say we can do two patients a month. Some sites will say we can do 20 patients a month. It depends on the disease state. It depends on its frequency. Like during COVID, it was really easy, not really easy, let me not say that. It was easier to get patients enrolled in studies because so many people were impacted by the disease. But then you see in different pockets of the United States that certain communities, primarily diverse communities, aren't going to enroll. And that site is right in the middle of a diverse community. So you see hmm. really, really low, low, low enrollment there. Hmm. Regulatory may offer input and say, you know, maybe we should have like a nurse that's more diverse to explain the study, hmm. which normally that happens anyway. But maybe we have a diverse nurse in that site explaining the study to these patients. Um, they try and come up with different ways, but they also could just close that site and open another one. So it really, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Primarily clinical operations is gonna have the say. In terms of setting up expectations with the FDA about enrollment, um, again, it depends. Sometimes um, companies per products are required to do like a quarterly enrollment update with the health authorities and say like how many patients have been enrolled per quarter. 
Um, it, that could be like, that's normally an agreed upon thing. It's not everybody that has to do that. Um, but you kind of just tell the FDA throughout the entire course of the study, we're aiming to enroll a hundred patients. Mm-hmm. And then you just aim to hit that goal. Sometimes it takes some sponsors six months to a year to complete enrollment. Sometimes it takes sponsors two years. I know studies that yeah. are still open now mm-hmm. trying to enroll people. It just kind of depends yeah. on your ClinOps team. Yeah. And also probably like, um, rare diseases, probably harder to recruit numbers very of patients hard. or, you know, the, maybe various geographies, but I wanted to come back to a point you, uh, were, uh, touching on earlier. And that is, you know, diversity of the population that's being recruited in yep. and in, enrolling in these, uh, clinical trials. So important. And I, I know a greater emphasis on this by FDA going forward. Any thoughts yep. on, you know, how, how we could be prioritizing, uh, diversity of the population, and just even some of your points around it, it could be as straightforward as having, you know, more diverse nurses or you know, people on the team that are related to the individuals. Big, I have a huge theory on this. Yeah, you let's know, hear it. I originally started um, in hematology because I do have sickle cell trait, and a lot of my family members have the trait and the disease. So sickle cell was really, really like, I did research in it in undergrad. Um, I worked with the head of hematology on a research project at Yale. Like it was a huge part of me wanting to even have interest in pharmaceuticals and regulatory and clinical research. Um, And when I left Pfizer, I ended up working for a a while at this company named Emmaus, which they were the first company after hydroxyurea to get an approval for sickle cell. So that was, Mm a really big pillar in my career. So I just wanted to mention that to really emphasize how important diversity in clinical research is to me. Um, I think the issue in clinical research and development is actually the lack of diversity within the organizations themselves. Uh, And I think it's kind of like a trickle down effect. I think when you have more diverse voices in an organization, such as regulatory clinical operations, Um, it's going to be a lot easier to address the issues we have in enrollment. I think when patients see diverse organizations and diverse employees, diverse nurses, diverse doctors, they might feel a little more comfortable in engaging in these trials. Mm -hmm. I also think that there's been this laissez-faire approach in industry to the historical context of people of color not wanting to engage in clinical research. Tuskegee kind of gets like, you know, it happened so long ago. Not really. Um, and it was also the CDC that was responsible for that, which was a government organization. So you have a lot of mistrust still prevalent in yes. these communities. And you see the people doing the research and it's the same people that did what they did during Tuskegee, as in lack of diversity. 12% yes. of uh, pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies in San Diego employ no people of color. Not a Mm -hmm. single one. Mm -hmm. Why would a person of color that doesn't really understand the complexities of research want to partake in something that looks similar to what happened like 60 years ago? So I feel like it's great what the FDA is doing in kind of putting that marker that, hey, you guys have to have a diversity plan now. But I don't know if the diversity plan is going to be the only great approach because the people implementing the plan aren't diverse themselves. Every team I've ever been on, I'm normally the only woman of color. No, that's an excellent point. I was going to even go beyond that. Going after, 
important diseases that affect more diverse populations. You mentioned sickle cell, for example. You know, that also reflects on the the complexion of the organization that's bringing, you know, that new therapeutic, that new discovery to the marketplace. And, and what I hear you saying, and I, and I agree it, that the beginning, you know, scientific team needs to be diverse from the beginning when that new molecule or that new agent uh, starts, you know, becoming a, a glimmer in the faculty member's eye, you know, and then from there, the, 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 the company that spins it out needs to have a, a diverse set of investors, uh, you know, valuing a diverse type of team that's thinking about broader sets of problems. And, and then that even formulations, way, kind of, even when we, yeah, sorry, even when we consider like formulations for a product, right? If you're going to formulate a product for a certain community and you know, it disproportionately affects like people of color, for example, sickle cell predominantly affects people of color, a powder formulation in a low income community is, I get it, but it's not always going to be the best approach because you have to think a lot of these people might live in food deserts. A lot of their first options or first choices aren't going to be water. How do you know the water is clean where they live? They might go for soda. And these are things that we saw in previous companies that I worked for that, you know, it wasn't the patient's first thought to like drink my medicine with water. So that you have, you have a lack of compliance and you also don't know if the product is going to work and you it isn't going to work in the same way because it's supposed to be formulated in a specific way or reconstituted in a specific way. So it's just like little nuanced things like that, where if you had diverse scientists, diverse researchers, diverse regulatory affairs professionals, they would have told you that in the beginning. At way back. Right. When those kinds of decisions yeah. have, have to be made, um, you know, when when you see like we're very focused on early stage investing, you know, kind of as a idea or team or intellectual property first gets translated out of the university. And as you look at that, you're making all kinds of different assessments as you decide whether or not to make an investment at the seed level. And you're doing a uh, the diligence process that includes, you know, is the intellectual property defensible? Is this working on a nar- novel area? Is it the right modality? What's the market size, total addressable market? What's the regulatory path? But another set of questions would be, what's the market opportunity? Are we thinking about, you know, the diversity of, of where we're aiming? Um, even from a business case perspective, how do we expand our reach and our opportunity? Decisions you make in the very beginning where things are still moldable, like you said, formulation, uh, the, the modality might have an impact on the difference between being able to, to access a big market with more diverse members uh, or a more narrow market, which may not have the, the returns that you know, you'd want to see from the first place anyway. The longer you go down the drug development path, the, the more worse. it gets fixed in cement and it's harder to change. It's impossible to change. And what makes or break the success a lot of times for like small to mid-sized pharma companies is that go-to-market strategy six months before you're expected to get your approval. And if you don't have a good, solid go-to-market strategy six months before, it could make or break whether or not patients are educated and providers are educated on your product, which inclines them to prescribe it, because that's another aspect of it. Um, There's a lot of drugs that people know nothing about, that don't even know exist or are approved, and it's because the company didn't have a good uh, infrastructure in how to market their product to their target population, which sucks too, because obviously patients need options um, for different disease states. And it's just, it's unfortunate. It's a very, research and development is a very complex 
it's so complicated. And I think you have to be able to look at it with a bird's eye view perspective to really understand all the moving pieces to ensure the product is successful and to ensure that patients are actually getting what they need. Yeah, no, very, very great points. Well, switching gears a little bit and talking maybe just back to your, you know, opening uh, description of your journey and kind of what led you to where you are now. What what were some of the things that got you excited about, you know, evangelizing the opportunity for regulatory affairs and really being, you know, uh, a spokesperson for, you know, welcoming many uh, into that that particular pathway and maybe back to the yeah. book was that an was that an instigator for why you were interested in in in, um, in in writing the book yeah um very good question i think part of me wanting to educate people on like clinical research and development stemmed from the fact that i always felt like the youngest person on my team and i always felt like the only person of color on my team in it didn't really make sense to me. And I felt as though it was just more so a lack of people understanding what opportunities were out there. So one part was to kind of like tackle the diversity piece that we've already discussed mm -hmm. um, in, in making sure that the information is accessible to everyone. Because there's some people who will put their content behind a paywall like Patreon or whatever. And I was like, no, anyone who wants to, anyone who spends the time to go on YouTube to research different careers, you're obviously trying and yearning for other options for yourself. And that's enough for me to say, if you're looking for the information, I'm willing to share it. So that's in one part. And then in second part, um, I would just have a lot of people reach out to me about different careers, public health, regulatory. And that's kind of what kickstarted me wanting to write the book in part to not have to keep answering the same questions over and over again. Um, but in second part to also just like get all the career knowledge that I had gained at that time to just put it in a book for anyone who was willing to read and wanting to advance in their career. How did you write the book? I mean, you're a very busy person. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you find time to write the book while you were doing all the other, your day job, if you will? I'm yeah, fascinated by that. I don't sleep. That. I don't sleep much. Um, but I have excellent time management skills, I would say, mm. like impeccable time management. Um, and when it comes to like my social media, a lot of my stuff is pre-recorded. So I'll spend, for example, when I first started YouTube, because I was in grad school as well when I first started my YouTube channel, I would spend like one weekend and I would film like 20 videos. Hmm. And then I would edit them throughout the week, like after work or after school or whenever I had time. And then I would schedule all those posts and not think about my YouTube for like three to six months. And I would post once a week. And then I actually wrote my book during COVID um, because I okay. kind of just had more time. Nobody was going out. Nobody was really doing anything. And I just sat down and it took me about like, maybe six months, six to eight months to write the book. Um, but I love writing. What was the daily routine? What was the da daily routine like? I didn't really have one. I would Did just, have one? whenever maybe I didn't felt have like one. wanting to write, I didn't have one, I have one. I just, mm. whenever I felt mm. like I wanted to write, I would just sit down, open my laptop and start writing. And sometimes I would write for like six hours straight until like three, four in the morning. And other days I would write for 30 minutes. And then when it got closer to the time that I actually wanted to get the book published, I got more serious about like, okay, this is the only thing I'm working on, which means my YouTube was lacking. I didn't post on YouTube for like six months after those videos timed out. Um, and then I just kind of focused heavily on the book. And now my routine is kind of similar where I'm pre-recording a lot of videos and content and repurposing, on, repurposing them on all platforms. 
How did you feel? I also work remotely. You... So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Helps. No, it's still giving you some flexibility. Yeah. But yeah. Tell me, tell me how you felt, you know, when you uh, finished the last sentence in the book. And yeah. then so so from from that moment forward, how did you feel when you completed it? And then what was the reaction afterwards? And how did that feel as well? Yeah, um, it's so funny. I didn't really have much of a reaction. I was like, OK, this is something I wanted to do. It's done. What's next? Kind of. That's literally <laughs> how I felt That's great. about it. it. Um, yeah, I just I, I, when I tell you, I literally just decided I was like, OK, I'm going to write this book. And then I completed the book and I was like, all right, well, I need to find an agent. So I did a bunch of research online, found this website where you can pitch to different agents. I got reached out to maybe like three or four days, maybe eight days later, signed a contract with my agent. I had a book deal like two months later. So it all happened very fast. Um, I'm a checklist kind of person. I think that's probably why I'm good at regulatory affairs. So it was just a bunch of things that I checked off the list and I was proud of my accomplishment, but ready to take on the next uh, task. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very creative. And, and that's, I mean, I, I see you as a person who keeps building on your, you're like this snowball. You keep, <laughs> keep, keep building on your momentum um, yep. and creating new options for yourself too. And at the same time, right. probably keeping it, keeping it fresh. And you keep coming back to um, maybe uh, intuitively there's, there's this interface between the content that you created in the book, which was like you said, kind of a uh, capturing a moment in time, you know, up to yep. that point of the date of publishing. But then talk a little bit about your social media presence and YouTube yeah. and how you use that to keep some of that material um, uh, fresh and create new material kind of as you're, yeah. as you're building some of that content. So TikTok gives me a lot of inspiration, I would say, for like new topics that I want to discuss on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, because a lot of people will just ask a ton of questions and it'll be things that I never thought of before. Uh, also, I spend a lot of time reading, learning new things. Most recently, I'm trying to tackle the understanding of like the venture capital startup world, a uh, completely different wheelhouse for me. Um, but as I'm sharing stuff that I learned in like six months previously on social media. I'm learning new information now that I'll probably share six months from now or whatever the next date of that whole snowball effect comes into play. But um, yeah, I take inspiration from people who watch my content and ask questions. I also take inspiration from information that's shared. Like I just shared about the FDA not doing animal studies anymore. I might make a YouTube video about that. I talk a lot about the integration of medical device and pharma and tech and what I think that looks like in the future. I've made videos on biotech and cosmetics and what that kind of looks like um, as biotech companies start to create more sustainable sources for cosmetics like squalene or um, things like that. So I draw from current events and my followers leaving comments. What are some of the things when we think about uh, the take home message uh, a little bit about the, kind of the, the prepared graduate uh, yeah. mantra, what some of the takeaways there, and then also um, just bringing it all home. What are, yeah. what are some of the things that you are inspired by as you interact with your followers that, you know, are really kind of looking to uh, learn from you and kind of uh, follow in your footsteps? Yeah. Um, so the first, the takeaways from the prepared graduate, number one, I would say experimentation. Uh, I experimented a lot in college. I said I did internships, volunteer. I tried different jobs. 
Um, and in doing all those different things, it kind of helped me solidify what my interests were. I think people choose one thing and they're like, this is the thing I have to do, but it really doesn't, especially if you've never tried it before. I'm big on, I gotta try it if, if, I, if I know I like it or not. If I had not tried volunteering, I would be a pediatrician. If I had not worked in an OR as a surgical intern, I would have tried to do plastic surgery only to find out I don't really like it that much. Um, so I think, Experimentation is one of the biggest takeaways in the book. The second is patience and persistence. You have to keep pushing the needle in order, or I would say it's like a rubber band effect. The more you stretch a rubber band, the more room there is in the rubber band. Um, but if you don't stretch it out, you're kind of gonna be stuck with the same circle of options. So you have to just be persistent and resilient and patient with yourself. I talk a lot about gratitude in the book as well. Um, I was diagnosed with learning disability in the third grade and people always used to say like, your reading is below the level of your peers. And like, people used to think I wasn't gonna go to college and all this stuff. But, you know, I express a lot of gratitude for myself and the growth that I've had as a person, educationally and professionally, and recognizing what people thought I would become was not definite. Um, so I, I would say those are like the three biggest takeaways. and. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I experiment. You use the word experimentation too, and Correct. I just draw the parallels to you know your role in regulatory affairs too. When you think about you know, there, to, to some degree, making that case, there is a level of experimentation that you're presenting, 100%. you know, to the adjudicating body in this case, the FDA. So I'm just yep. interested to kind of hear you talk uh, in parallel paths with regards to your own your own journey. Yeah, I know. I think uh, there, there's so much pressure, you know, from a societal perspective around you know the way it's supposed to go, you know, grade school, mm -hmm. high school, college, into, into the job market or undergraduate school. And everybody has to kind of, you know, is supposed to know what they're going to do, you know, as they, as they graduate. So I think there's just a ton of pressure to follow in that direction. I think the, if I look at my, you know, my parents' generation, you know, my dad, who is my hero, you know, worked at one place for 40 years, Inland Steel for yeah. 40 years, kind of <laughs> climbed the ladder. And, and in some ways he was reinventing himself within the skin of a large organization. So I think that's how he kept it real and how he kept growing. Um, I think the beauty of today's society is that there is a lot more opportunity to be your own brand, to kind of design your own uh, future, manage your own destiny, if you will, with entrepreneurial thinking. Um, and and there's there's not really a stigma about that. There's even a celebration around people that are moving in that that direction, which I don't think was the case in the prior generation. That's why you had so much of that, you know, being built around this long, you know, uh, cor corporate ladder climb, if you will. Um, my the point I'm trying to get to is this: there's like a programmatic element of expectations. Now, maybe on the in the workforce side of things, that's been uh, shattered a bit in, in the sense that the Great Recession caused, you know, a lot more openness toward risk-taking and new opportunities and entrepreneurship and, and, and all, of, all of that. But there's still, I think, this remnants of the past around the educational path is still this very programmatic yeah. thing. And expectations are, by the time you graduate, you know, you're supposed to know, or at least you know, kids are thinking they need to know exactly what, what and has you to don't. happen. Yeah, and, right? And some people are like, oh, college, like it's not worth it anymore. It's not worth it anymore. I personally disagree because I mean, there's some professions like seriously, you're not gonna be able to get the opportunity. When I first right. started at uh, Pfizer, a lot of people had high school degrees and then they got laid off. And eventually it was started to become like bachelor's was the minimum criteria. Mm -hmm. And I think that's gonna going, it's going to continue for certain. It professions. is what it is. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's minimum yeah. minimum table stakes, and and the degree it, it, it tends to be you know that creates the most amount of you know beginning optionality, right? Yeah. Is kind of what I hear you saying. I mean, to, if you just have the high school degree, that's not so many people can and will succeed thereafter. But your options are more limited than your ability to kind of take Bachelors. it through college. And then have the ability to kind of be in the game and, you know, and then modify it's your It's kind of happening in research and development now. I'm actually noticing the influx of PharmDs leaving retail and looking for opportunities in research and development is making it really hard for people with just a bachelor's. It's becoming more difficult, at least in this industry, because why not take the PharmD that studied pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, the ins and outs of pharmacology over the person that just has the bachelor's of science? Obviously, we're going to take the doctorate. So now it's more so to compete in these regulatory affairs, medical affairs type roles. You're seeing a lot of certifications in regulatory affairs. You're seeing a lot of MS, MPH, PharmD, PhD, MD, JD, and if you don't have those advanced degrees, it's going to become more and more challenging for you to enter into the industry. Interesting. Interesting. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, can, uh, as a continuation of that uh, thought process, what are some of the uh, pieces of advice that you would provide to, you know, a, a graduate coming, coming out of college? You know, what, in addition to what you've said, kind of flexibility, yeah. being open minded, but any like core advice that you would, that you would give to um, the, the next generation, particularly kind of in that regulatory affairs or, or science path? Yeah, I would say work in college get a job in college. Even if it's part-time, it doesn't really matter. Anything that can kind of give you experience in pharmaceuticals, and it doesn't have to be working at a pharmaceutical company. I literally worked as a technician at CVS, and that's what gave me a leg up. And then you can work as a lab assistant in a hospital. Hospitals have labs. They do tests as well on their patients, just as a company would. And I think that's something that people just don't know. Um, so I would say getting experience is really important. What are what are some of the barriers um, that you think you know our our audience needs to be ready for if they're if they're thinking about the next steps kind of post post graduation from from college what are, what are some of the barriers that you had to face you know as you made those transitions from CVS and onto your next path uh, that you were able to overcome and, and get going yeah it's selling yourself mm -hmm. I think that's the problem that most people have actually is selling themselves because. I know people who are like, I work as a technician too, and I've applied to regulatory jobs and nobody wants to hire me. I'm like, you're not making the recruiter or the employer feel comfortable in the skills that you've gained in regulatory, in pharmaceutical technician to translate it into regulatory. Cause regulatory really, in order to be successful, it's based on experience. Like, honestly, it's such a nuanced field. The regulations change every day. The only way yeah. you get good at regulatory is by working on a product. So yeah. anybody who's like, yeah, I went to school for regulatory and I just got a job right off the bat, maybe, but it's still very hard to be successful if you aren't, you don't have ownership over a product. So for me, I had to get really good at curating my resume to make someone feel comfortable in the skills that I had. So I would use, I would wordsmith a lot and say like working in the pharmacy, you do technically have to enforce regulations. They're not the same regulations mm -hmm. as product and development, but they're regulations nonetheless. Mm -hmm. So I would say stuff like enforced state, local and federal regulations in compliance with pharmaceutical, whatever. Um, and those were little things that 
the recruiters for regulatory roles would pick up and say, hey, are you interested in these opportunities? So I would say wordsmithing and just getting really good at selling yourself on the resume and in an interview. If you're not comfortable with your skills, nobody else is going to be. No, that's outstanding advice. Yeah, no, and and I would say the same, just even in my experiences, um, you know, pick any function, like people talk about, you know, finance and, you know, what's it like to be, you know, uh, raising money, like every thing that you're really building and creating and growing within, uh, it means you're, you're going to be selling and marketing. Are you your chief, you know, branding officer, your chief marketing officer, your own chief sales officer? That is really what allows you to, to become the full, the full you in, in a way. And, and, and I think, um, that's, that's challenging because you're taking risks, you're going out on a limb and sometimes you're kind of being punched in the face because <laughs> not everybody likes the idea or you may be stretching and people are challenging you on that. But I think, through my own experiences, um, it can be what your advice can be really um, p- focused on any different application. And it becomes the almost a tantamount skill required to become the full you is just being able to tell your story and be able to market yourself. You have to, you have to get, you know, and I think I've had, I've had a very interesting life, I would say. I actually worked mm-hmm. at a real estate office. Um, when I was in high school, one of my family friends was like, oh, you know, I think it'll be good for you to get your first corporate experience. So I mm-hmm. was the executive assistant to the CEO and the CFO, and they taught me how to do marketing materials, cut checks. Like I was kind of like the younger person in the office that everyone just kind of taught. And real estate agents are some of the best sellers in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm working with people who are selling million dollar homes, teaching me how they like talk to their clients. And I'm just soaking it in as like this 17 year old kid. But what I really absorbed in that experience was how to sell myself, how to market anything. doesn't matter what it is. It's, it's the story behind it. And I think the greatest thing for me to sell is myself um, because I'm very comfortable and confident in my skill, sales, skill set and my abilities. So when you believe it, it's very easy for other people to believe it. So I think the experience that I had as a teenager in all the different work experiences, I worked at Macy's selling shoes in college mm-hmm. as well. Um, mm-hmm. It just made it easier for me to get comfortable with the idea of selling myself. Was there any uh, chief um, inspiration person uh, in your journey that kind of uh, helped you kind of see yourself as being confident and be able to really with conviction, you know, sell who, who you were and all, all your talents. Did, was there anybody or, or people that, that were influential for you? So many people. My mom is number one, I would say. Uh, one of the hardest working people I know. She worked as a financial advisor for years. And there's, some, there's a resilience in my community. I'm Nigerian, so there's like a really strong resilience that you just witness as a child in your parents and your cousins and your relatives. And I think that's what it is for a lot of children of immigrants. You just see a you 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 see a different perspective for them because they had they're leaving their country for better opportunity and they're working hard. The ultimate entrepreneurs. I mean that's that's the ultimate (laughs) risk to take, right? You know, it really is. So that was one part. And um I just had so many people along the way in my journey. Like the family friend I'm talking about um was my brother's girlfriend at the time and she really took me under her wing. Her father was is a very successful businessman. So she was already business oriented from birth. And um 
she kind of just was like, no, you don't do it this way. You got to do it this way. Why don't you do this? She would challenge me, question me, encourage me, educate me. And as I went on to different parts, when I was at Yale, there was a woman by the name Ellen Jenkins Capiello. She was a nurse educator there. <laughs> and she had her MPH. She was the person who told me to get my master's. She was like, you need to get wow. your MPH. And I was like, no, I don't know, you know, it's fine. And she's like, no, you're really good at public health. Like you're yeah. really good at educating people. You need to go get your MPH. I applied to one program, I got in, I went to that program. Um, I had classes. The rest is, no, it really is. And even to this <laughs> day, I have friends that work in social media. One of my friends is a really big content creator. I lived with her for two years during COVID, the whole pandemic, we lived together. Mm -hmm. She taught me everything I know about social media. So surround yourself with people that are helping elevate you and that believe believe yeah. in in the you of the future too. As yeah. what I uh, can can take out of that and crystallize. One, yeah. I mean, as we begin to uh, wrap up the conversation, one, one of the big questions I want to ask you is just on your last point, and that is, um, you obviously have a lot to sell and you have a lot um, uh, that you've accomplished, but having the right medium and the right platform to be able to tell that story on a bigger stage. Um, I'm just um, really inspired by what you've been able to accomplish with your whole platform. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um, do you enjoy doing that? You must, but maybe just yeah, talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about like your first experience in getting really into the social media at the scale that you're involved right now. And um, you know, kind of what got you into it in the first place. And then, um, what's your vision for, you know, moving forward, your, your vision for how you'll continue to, uh, grow and expand the platform. Yeah, I love it. I, I love it. I love engaging in conversation with people. I love sharing my experiences and my perspective. Um, my mom has always told me that you're not successful if you haven't helped other people be successful. Like if you don't give back in a certain way. So, um, I feel really good about the information I share. And, you know, sometimes people in my industry are like, I don't know if you should be sharing so much information. Like, you don't know if it's going to impact your next job. But I honestly believe my ability to um, conceptualize the research and development industry and public health is one of my greatest strengths that any organization should be happy um, their employee has. So mm -hmm. I enjoy it. And what I see for the future um, I'm a very strategic person. So there's many things that I plan to use my platform for. That's in part why I'm learning more about venture capital and startups, because that's the road I kind of see myself going down. Um, and my hope is to use my platform to help build that other platform that's on the VC path. That's amazing. I, I, just to hear you talk that way, you're creating another option for yourself through expanding the platform by starting to peer into new pathways and pockets of the marketplace like VC and startups that are maybe being made possible because of your you know endeavors and building the platform. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So How, that's what I'm really um, excited for. What, what are some of Sorry, the things that you think, Oh no, uh, my, my last uh, question really is what are, what are some of the things that you think, um, are on the horizon uh, as opportunities um, in kind of the whole landscape of drug development. And we've got, you know, it's an exciting time for science in so many ways, right? In that, you know, you've got new 
kinds of uh, therapeutics uh, like CAR T and cell therapy and gene therapy, going after rare diseases, kind of drug targets that were never, you know, capable of being, you know, attacked before that are now possible in, yeah. in neurodegenerative diseases. So there's a lot happening in in the drug discovery and development arena that augurs well for for patients. Can you just talk about your vision, especially as it relates to kind of regulatory affairs and the drug development um, industry as well? Um, I want to make sure I understood the question. So like, where do I see the industry going? Yeah. What's your vision for, you know, what these new types of treatments mean for patients um, as we see them uh, make their way through the clinical trial process? Yeah, I think... Patients will have a lot more options for sure, especially with regenerative medicine. I think that's the the coolest part. Um, And I also think that, yeah, I just think patients will have more options. And I do think that with the research that's being done, more industries will be able to expand. Like I touched a little bit on biotech's impact in cosmetics. Um, Also in tech, I do think that even though, you know, tech right now is going through it, I do believe that in the next like five to 10 years, like medical device and tech will be more talked about than pharmaceutical, biologic, small molecules are discussed just because I think that's something that the public is interested in. Um, I mean, you kind of already see like Apple doing clinical studies with Apple Watch or Mm -hmm. I I don't know what the clinical studies are exactly. Let me not say what, (laughs) but I do think that um, that's something that will continue to be developed. And my hope for the industry is that patients begin to trust research and development more as it's more talked about in a positive light. I think a lot of what gets amplified in the media is the negative side. Like, you know, uh, for a while during COVID, so many people were talking about how like Pfizer didn't want to release the records because, you know, there's like the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Mm -hmm. Act, how they didn't want to release it because it was going to take so much time. I mean, that's not the whole story. And it just it paints a really bad picture of what these pharmaceutical companies are doing. And it's kind of frustrating or when a drug for a rare disease gets approved and people are like, it's so expensive. Yes, it is expensive. And I don't think it should ever be that expensive. But I do think that the media needs to paint a better picture for um, the populations in which they're serving to understand the cost of research and development. Cause no one talks about how globally $273 billion were spent in research and development just in 2021 or 2022. They just talk about how much is being made, but we're not discussing the global spend. So there's a lot. I do think that there's going to be more options for patients. And my hope in conclusion is that as there are more options, patients understand what those options are um, and what, you know, and how those options can impact their life expectancy for the better. Very hopeful, and I think very realistic as well. Well, Kaya, it's been a true pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for spending time with the Lab Rats to Unicorns uh, audience today. (laughs) Thank you so much. This is amazing. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.